the ways that you have interceded in all our lives. How we've learned to trust you and how we have yet to learn to trust you. So we ask that you'll be with these words. We all come needing to hear a word from you, myself included. So thank you for this time we can share. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. I want to start by reading a passage out of Judges chapter 6, and it's a story if you grew up in church that many of you know. It's a story of Gideon. And it's not, I'm not going to read the whole story because that goes on for two chapters. But um, just the, the part starting in verse 11 when Gideon is visited by an angel. And I think we got this. Yes, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, O mighty warrior. Well, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us, and he's given us to the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have, and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? The word of the Lord. Um, I'm going to ask you to do something you probably did as a kid in church. Okay? And many of you didn't, so you're about to enter into new territory. I want you to take your bulletin, and I want you to just hold it wide open like this in front of you. Okay? And what I want you to do, now we're, this is going to be a little bit of math, and I'm not really good at math, but we'll, we'll, you can feel the, the density of this paper. You can feel how thick it is. And when you fold it, we have moved it one fold, and it's become double the thickness. You go, wait a second, did I get out of, up early in the morning to come to church to hear this? And yes, you did. Um, so if you fold it again on itself, you've moved from the thickness of two to a thickness of? You guys are good. Okay, so now you're four, you're feeling this. And now you're going to go through a third fold. And we've moved from four to eight. Okay. And you'll go through a fourth fold here. And now you move from four, I'm from eight, sorry. So I told you I'm not good at math. You've moved from eight to six, okay, 16, four folds. One more fold, let's do a five. Okay, that's getting pretty tricky. All right, five, we've moved from 16 to See, this is like people who want to teach you about compound interest and that kind of stuff. This is how that works, right? We're going to go through a sixth fold. And if you have arthritis in your fingers like I do, it's a little tricky. But right now you're holding in your hand, you've moved this bulletin from 16 to... I'm sorry, from... Th yes. 
Okay, whatever, <laughs> whatever. That's six folds. We've already accomplished six folds and we're feeling the thickness that's there. Now I have a question for you. Having experienced this together, if you were to able, if you were able to do this 44 more times, a total of 50 times on itself, how thick do you think it would be? And, and I'll just ask, how many think it would be, um, let's say, from here to Revolution Brewery? That far, you think? 50 times? And all of you all, you gone, all you all going, I don't know where Revolution Brewery is. Right. I, I, okay, I know better. Uh, so, so up that way, okay, no, bigger than that, right? Okay, if you could do it more than this, how many think it would be like from here to the south side of Chicago, let's say Calumet Park? Does that sound too much? 50, just 50 folds, 44 more, right? Okay, how many think that it would stretch from here to St. Louis? One guy's going, you got, okay, you got it bigger, bigger than this. Okay, how many think that if you could do this, it would wrap around the circumference of the world? That sound good? And you keep going. Now, either you read the book or something, but um, if you could fold this 50 times, it would stretch from here to the sun. Now, if I was in banking, I would say, that's the power of compound interest. Okay. But I'm not. Actually, I learned this little trick from a book which was released way back in the early 2000s, in a book by Malcolm Gladwell. Some of you have read Gladwell. It's called The Tipping Point. And what The Tipping Point is, is The Tipping Point is actually a study on how epidemics get started. Things are moving along just as they're supposed to move along. Things happen, and this can happen as an epidemic in the medical world, but it can also happen as an epidemic in social science spheres. And so as you look and things go along, something happens where certain things line up and they just shoot like crazy beyond control. Now, why this became important to me was right about the time I was reading this book back in 2000. My daughter, who had just graduated from University of Chicago, said that she was moving to New York City. Now, I grew up in Chicago. I grew up in Jefferson Park. I've spent all my time in my life in the city of Chicago. I think the city of Chicago is the greatest city in the world. Now, it sounds like I'm doing a rock concert. Oh, Chicago! You know, woo! No. When I visited my daughter in New York, I was reminded that Chicago is like a farm town. Seriously, that place is no joke. But when she announced to me she was moving, I couldn't help but think on a whole bunch of old um, movies that I saw about New York City, right? And I started seeing this craziness and we moved her to her apartment in the East Village and it was this little postage stamp apartment, one room, 10 by 20, with a bathroom in the back and a little kitchenette and, and this is where my daughter's gonna live? And on top of that, I just, you know, I just see it was kind of dark and dingy and you could see through the floorboards to the, to the apartment beneath. 
I'm like, no, this ain't working. But it's what she found because she wanted to go to New York City to try her hand at investment banking. And that's where everyone went to go and do that. Now, what did I find out about this? Well, had I read Gladwell at this point, I would have found out that crime ended in New York City back in 1992. I didn't know that. But I went back and I checked some of the statistics on this, and do you know that before 1990, there were averaging in the mid-2000s in murders in the city of New York, and by 1993, they were below 700. How'd that happen? What happened that it dropped so much? And if you think that was just an anomaly, to this very day, in New York City, that giant place, there are under 300 murders a year. How can that be? When we're sitting in the city of Chicago and we see something, so much smaller city, and we see something completely beyond that. Well, back in the day, of course, when that happened, all the politicians looked to take credit for it, and there was one guy who was made the head of the transit police, and he, he helped in this thing called broken windows theory, which was saying if you take care of the little things, then actually it looks like the whole city cares, and it, actually, it starts to spread through this idea, this, this epidemic of goodness. So one of the things they started doing was arresting fair jumpers, you know, and, and, and the transit system. Because the crime was so big, all the police and the transit police said, we don't have time to deal with these people who hopped them. But what they found was when they started pushing back on that and the little things, that actually they were able to track down crime in ways they hadn't been able to do it before because of the little things that were. Now, of course, he wanted to take credit for everything. The mayor at that time wanted to take credit for everything. Every, so everybody steps in and says what we're doing is the thing that made this happen. But what it really was, was it was a confluence of a lot of things, not the least of which is that New York City became well known as the center for economic activity in not just the United States, but the whole world. Meaning that the people that were moving in, like my daughter, and trying to do something there, were in a completely different space than the people who had left New York City during that time. All of these things mixed together to create an epidemic of goodness that traveled throughout New York City that lasts in some ways to this day. Now you're thinking, are my New York City? Well, just to think of it, my daughter's little apartment back in that day cost just short of $2,000 a month. You can see how all this stuff fits together and starts working. Now, I'm just saying, you didn't come to hear a sociology experiment from me, but I just wanted to look at this. And the other thing is, if you think it was just about crime or it's just about, it's, it's about health and epidemics, uh, how many here know what hush puppies are? I'm not talking about the potatoes. Okay, I'm talking about, now, how many still know what hush puppies are? Okay, uh, they're shoes, right? And some of you go as far back as I do know that when I was in the finishing up in grade school, hush puppies were, were these suede, very comfortable shoes, were just something that were really great, and they sold a lot back then, and we all enjoyed them. And then they just kind of went away, and there's this little factory in South Dakota that makes hush puppy shoes. I think it's North or South Dakota, one or the other. And they had gotten used to regular sales of 40,000 pairs of shoes a year. 
And there was this group again in New York City, a group of hipsters that kind of went around. Sorry about that, but I've always fashioned myself to be one. It's a wannabe hipster. But um, never happened, by the way. But they went around to use clothing stores. And what they did in finding things in used clothing stores, they would fashion new trends because when the hipsters thought something was great, they would buy them up and everybody else would say, I got to have that. It was seemed like within a period of two years that they went, that hush puppies went from something like 40,000 pairs of shoes a year to having to make over 400,000 pairs of shoes. And they weren't ready to do that. But what happened was there was an epidemic of hush puppies that hit the world, right? This is, this is all strange. How did this stuff happen? And the book describes all this. But here's the key quote in the book. And this is what I want you to remember. Actually, what Malcolm Gladwell was saying is to appreciate an epidemic, one must abandon the expectation of proportionality. Now that's a mouthful, I'm going to repeat it. To appreciate an epidemic, when something just goes along and goes along and goes along, down, up, and all of a sudden shoots up. In order to appreciate how that works, one has to abandon the expectations of proportionality. Our little experiment here started with the proportion. And the proportion limited us from being, except for one person here, limited us from being able to see that 50 folds could stretch from here to the sun. Our proportions mean everything. Okay? And why am I saying all this? Well, I just read you a story, and I want to go through the story kind of real quickly. Um, I know we're, t how long do we, well, never mind. Um, Gideon is an interesting, interesting story in this. As we kind of look through how this is working out, the angel of the Lord, first of all, you need to know that the Midianites were a group of people, they were a nation that was overwhelming Israel. It, didn't, it doesn't say so much that they were a military force that tried to slaughter Israel. They were just so great in numbers, it says they were like locusts. They came in, and as soon as Israel planted, the nation, the Midianites came in and devoured everything. It was just overwhelming. So many people. And Israel was so afraid of them and so overwhelmed at that time that they began hiding out in caves. They didn't even live freely in the open so that these caves and different places where people were hiding out just to try and sustain themselves. The very nation of Israel was threatened by the overwhelming sense of the presence of the Midianites among them. And so as they're trying to deal with this and what was going on, you find Gideon, who's here actually beating out wheat in a wine press. Now, if you, if you would go back and just kind of look at what wine presses were, they were pretty small, maybe six feet around place where you drop grapes, and I think you remember that people used to stomp on grapes and all that sort of stuff. But wheat was actually something that was supposed to be threshed in the open. 
And so when there was a threshing that was going on out there, it should be there for everybody to see because the wind blew away the chaff while the wheat would stay. And now you've got Gideon doing the hard work of beating out wheat in a wine press. Why? Basically to save his family. His people became preeminent. And so it's at this point, when you see Gideon just, and the nation Israel hiding in caves, and this one man beating out wheat in a wine press just barely to get by, that the angel of the Lord finds Gideon and he says to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Now if I'm Gideon, I'm like, you talking to me? Right? It's, it's just this little thing like, valiant warrior, I'm beating out wheat in a wine press. It doesn't exactly speak to the idea of who you say that I am. And then he continues, so the angel continues with him, and, and, but Gideon is interested in this interaction, in this conversation that's happening. And Gideon goes, oh yeah, if you are with us, and where have you been all this time? Where are all the things that we heard about back when you rescued us from Egypt and we came out of there? We keep hearing stories of the past. That's great, but it's getting us nowhere right now, and it seems as though you've abandoned us. I would say that Gideon has a proportionality problem right now. But please understand, it's founded in reality. This is a real question, dealt with by real people engaging this. And Gideon really pushes back. I love it. I love that Gideon wasn't narcissistic enough at that time to go, well, maybe I am a valiant warrior. He's the most scared person in the world. But as this engagement goes back and forth, and it takes a long time, because if you read on in the story, it basically says that Gideon kept laying down fleeces saying, I got to know it's you, I got to know it's you, I got to know it's you. And he wasn't that kind of person who was going to take over. He was the kind of person who was testing all the time. And I love that because that's kind of who I am. If God visited me these days and said, Lord is with you, O valiant warrior, I'm going, man, lost the time. It's not happening. But you know what? I've noticed that we do that not just individually, but we even do that as churches, as whole groups of people. So if the Lord was to come here at New Community Covenant Church and say, the Lord is with you all, valiant warrior, and you might be in the midst of something, like you're just kind of facing uncertainty, and it's just like, it's hard for me to hear right now. It's hard for me to hear. My role with, with the Covenant Church in the past, I'd say, 13, 14 years has been Director of Congregational Vitality while I'm Associate Superintendent. And I work with congregations that are struggling with their own vitality and their own existence. Many of them feel a little bit like Gideon. Many of them are beating out wheat in a wine press. And it's a, it's a bit of a struggle. Or it's a lot of a struggle, and some aren't even surviving. Because that's just the nature of what's going on. It's bigger than any local church. It's, it's what is the church in the world we face right now, and how does this message to Gideon 
speak to that. You see, these churches all began out of vision. They all began with, with expectations and just thinking that the world's going to go and the programs are put into place to facilitate what they're doing and they have great kids programs and they have great worship and they have all these things. And then in time, generations maybe, it just kind of starts to slowly go the way things go. And I could just hear God kind of showing up in some of those situations saying, the Lord is with you, O valiant ones. But our expectations and our proportionalities couldn't hear it. And that's what happens with us. And after a while, nostalgia is expected to carry the vision instead of a sense of God's purposes. Oh, I remember when. Oh, that was so good. Oh, when we... Do you see what I'm saying? Proportionalities start to get small, and they work down. So Gideon's key objections, they're pretty key. The first, the first ones are corporate. Where have you been? If you've been with us, then why has all this happened to us? You notice he didn't take it on as an individual statement. He took it on corporately. If the Lord is with us, he said, Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. If the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? There's a corporate sense of Gideon's initial responses. Where are all the miracles we used to hear about? In fact, some of us are talking and we think that you've abandoned us. It's a pretty hefty proportion. But there's also part of this for Gideon that's very personal. Okay? God says, I will be with you, and you will deliver Israel. And then he comes back with, my family is the least important family in all of Manasseh. You haven't chosen someone who is coming from the great stock of having a good political context to work from. We are nothing. And he goes further and says, not just my family, but I'm the youngest and the least in my family. So you are choosing the least person from the least family in all of Manasseh. Nobody's going to listen to me. And God keeps reaffirming, I can do this. But Gideon is not limited just by the proportionality of Israel. He's limited by the proportionality of his own experience and family. And that's where it connects with us. I think that there are corporate corporate responses to the story of Gideon that we hear, but I also think that there are personal responses. So there's a key biblical truth. If you're writing anything down, I like to just come out with one sentence because it's, it's just kind of a way to just look at it. It says the key biblical truth is God's people abandoned limited proportions to engage a kingdom-sized vision. God's people abandon limited proportions to engage a kingdom-sized vision. I'd love to hear that you're, you're reading the Bible together because we have to find ways to reinforce the greatness of God in the midst of struggle, in the midst of the stuff we're going through. We have to say, God, I don't know what, but, but yeah, I, I connect. I connect with your scriptures. I connect with what it is that you're saying to us. And somehow, I don't know, I don't think we can pull it off. 
but I've seen you do it, and somehow I know you're calling me to that kind of faith. That kind of faith. I think that's a little bit of how that works. When the Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 3, now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more that we, than we can ask or imagine. Think of that. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. Far more than we can ask or even imagine. Abandoning the expectation of proportionality. I think actually, I think that Malcolm Gladwell is on to something. I don't think it's as mystical as we think it is. I think the power of the Spirit is let loose in you and in people like you in this congregation to just be able to be a force in the world around us and in this church. So this is personal. You may be one whose life has taken on taken turns consistently contrary to how you thought it was supposed to be. That's the way it is with us. I'm, expect, I, I'm basically confessing that myself. As I look back on years in my life, it didn't all turn out like I thought it was supposed to. Someone sold me something, and it wasn't this, and I felt disappointed, and I felt hurt. In fact, as I work with churches, I see that they're filled with people who are more my age, who are looking back on their lives and family and children and feeling like they've been abandoned. That's what it feels like. Many of us have experienced these disappointments in life. Even though we've been raised to believe that God has our best interest at heart, and there's an incongruence there. But God can deal with it, just like he did with Gideon. He can deal with the fact that you are pushing back maybe now. Please, I want you to hear that. Because the things that are going on in our lives are the things that are shaping and molding us and moving us to this place at this time, personally and corporately. Quote by Henry Nouwen, who says, I have found it very important in my own life to try to let go of my wishes and instead to live in hope. I am finding that what I choose to let go of, when I choose to let go of my sometimes petty and superficial wishes and trust that my life is precious and meaningful in the eyes of God, something really new, something beyond my own expectations begins to happen for me. And if you've read any of Henry Nouwen, you know he's coming from that place of experience, that place of depth. So there is a message here to New Community Covenant Church. It's good to remember. You've got... 15, you know, a decade and a half of good experiences as a church plant and growing and seeing how God has moved in your midst. And let's keep reminding ourselves of that. It's not like you're looking back to the Red Sea, right? You've got recent experiences that you're pulling from. But as we remind ourselves of that, let's also look at generations to come. For them and for us, we need more than remember when, 
We need a sense of where we're going. We need to engage God in the complex world of this age. What are our Midianites? What is overwhelming our world, our culture, our cities, even here, the city of Chicago? Violence, greed, racism, growing fascism, abuse of all kinds. These things are overwhelming. They are fa we're facing them. There are Midianites. And what idolatries vex our existence? The insatiable desire for more, beyond needs, but trinkets, really? And they numb our existence. And they make all of us insensitive to the subtle voice of the Spirit of God. How does the gospel speak to this disillusioned world today? How do we connect with that? And what unimaginable grace is God seeking to unleash in a new and fresh way that's so beyond our expectations of proportionality that we can only watch in amazement as his kingdom presence is experienced in the world. To be honest, I've brushed up against that at times in my life, but it really is a piece of action I'm still looking for. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.